0: This is the Alpha Human Podcast, and I am your host, Lawrence Rosenberg. Today, I am joined by Jim Olson, former chief of counterintelligence at the CIA. Jim served for over 30 years in clandestine operations, mainly against Russia's infamous KGB, but also to thwart the espionage efforts of China, Cuba, North Korea, and Iran, and He has been awarded the Intelligence Medal of Merit, the Distinguished Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal, and the Donovan Award. Jim is currently a professor teaching counterintelligence at Texas A&M's Bush School of Government, and he is also the author of Fair Play, The Moral Dilemmas of Spying, and To Catch a Spy, The Art of Counterintelligence. Jim, welcome to the show. Well,
1: thank you very much. It's nice to be here. I appreciate that uh, kind introduction.
0: Well, it's my pleasure. It's an absolute honor to have you on the show. I have to tell you that I read uh, your book, To Catch a Spy, and it is a fascinating look at the world of counterintelligence, uh, the espionage threats our country faces, and what it means to practice elite level CI. I'm talking about the processes, the methods, and the protocols Uh, So, you know, first and foremost, thank you so much for your service uh, for all these years. And uh, I guess a great way to start, uh, especially for a lot of our audience and any of the uninitiated, why don't we begin first by explaining what is counterintelligence? Because surprisingly, I think there are many people that understand the world of uh, intelligence gathering but they're a bit uh, gray when it comes to counterintelligence.
1: Counterintelligence is a subspecialty within the field of intelligence writ large. It really consists of all the steps that any country takes to protect its people and its secrets from efforts by foreign intelligence services to recruit those people or to steal that technology uh, or that information. And it is a big chore because we are under assault. And I don't think most people realize the extent to which foreign intelligence services, right now, in this country, on our own turf, are trying to steal our secrets and recruit our citizens.
0: Yeah, your your book really does uh, lift the lid on what that threat is, and we're going to get into that. I really want to dig into that threat because most people are just completely unaware of what's happening right under our noses. So we'll talk about that. But I think uh, maybe to start now that we understand, okay, this is what counterintelligence is, let's have a look at uh, your journey. It'd be great to know a little bit about you and your journey and your career and your rise uh, to becoming uh, the chief of counterintelligence. I think one of only seven, if I, if I remember correctly, Uh, At the CIA?
1: It's kind of an unlikely journey because I came from a small town in Iowa. Mm -hmm. This never would have seemed real or even a possibility for someone like me. I wasn't thinking in those terms. I graduated from the University of Iowa. I studied mathematics and economics. Then I felt called to serve the country, so I went to the United States Navy. I took a commission. I served for four years aboard guided missile destroyers and frigates and loved the Navy and seriously thought about staying in. But I finally decided I wanted to go back home. I wanted to go back to Iowa. I left the Navy. I applied for law school at the University of Iowa. I was accepted. That was my dream at the time, Lawrence. I wanted to practice what I thought was an honorable profession in a small county seat town in Iowa, Mm -hmm. serve my community, who knows even run for local office. But that wasn't meant to be. And after I was starting my senior year in law school, I was approached out of the blue. I had not applied. I got a telephone call, a very mysterious call. Mr. Olson, we think we have a career opportunity that might be of interest to you. So that was the start of secret trips to Washington, interviews, considerable testing of various things, background investigation, polygraphs, medical exams, eventually culminating in an offer to serve in what we call the clandestine service, the undercover espionage and covert action arm of the CIA. And I was so intrigued by that. I still don't remember when I accepted the offer, I was saying to myself, okay, Jim, you're gonna do this. It really sounds interesting, just for a couple of years. And then after two or three years, you are going back to Iowa, <laughs> okay. pursuing that original career you had in a small town law practice. Well, it didn't work out that way. And it didn't take long to realize that this was where I belonged. This was what I was meant to do to serve our country in the intelligence community. And, and I don't y- regret it at all. It was a
0: fantastic career. What year was it? When did you uh, enter the CIA? 1970. Hmm. Okay. So um, I also understand from uh, the book that you actually uh, were, uh, va- well, I guess two uh, very well-respected agencies were vying for your talents at the time, not just the CIA, but the FBI. Uh, I understand you're uh, kind of being looked at by both. And, and you actually made the decision, um, and, and it was looking good at the FBI, Um, They wanted you, but you turned them down and decided not to proceed um, and go with the CIA. Why was that?
1: I was in my last year of law school. I was running out of money. I needed a job. I did have these simultaneous application proceedings underway with the FBI and the CIA. I was attracted by both organizations. They're both wonderful ways to serve our country i called the fbi contact i had said listen i don't want to put you under any pressure at all i'm not doing that but i'm getting a little bit nervous here and i need a job can you kind of give me an idea of where my application stands and he said jim it's looking real good at the fbi everything seems to be on track but there's no problem in the course of the background investigation we discovered that you had a simultaneous application with the CIA. I said, that's right. Mm He said, well, our policy is that we will not process any applicant who has a pending application with the CIA. Those were bad years between the CIA and the FBI. Mm -hmm. G. Edgar Hoover, James Angleton didn't trust each other. I thought that that was pretty narrow. We're both serving the same country, the same government. Mm I thought that that was actually ridiculous. And so I took a real chance and said, I will not submit my withdrawal to the CIA. I think that's an unreasonable request. And that meant that I would be withdrawing from my application to the FBI. The real risk was that the CIA wouldn't come through and I'd be left high and dry. I'd be practicing law in Clinton, Iowa today, if that had happened, but fortunately, The CIA did come through and uh, finalize the offer. Fabulous! I I came this close to being an FBI special agent, and I'm sure it would have been a very rewarding uh, career.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you would have risen uh, somehow, found your way to the top of counterintelligence at the FBI.
1: I don't know about that. (laughs) that.
0: Well, um, so uh, a question: um, when it comes to uh, becoming a candidate for the CIA? Um, I understand these days that uh, there that you apply online uh, you put an application and I also understand that the CIA gets they're in the top ten of all uh, applications for a job for those graduating uh, university they're in the top ten with the fortune fortune 50 right CIA is in there but what I also understand from the past like in your case, uh, that individuals are tapped up uh, from time to time. Does that still go on today or does everyone just essentially uh, apply and they go through a process that way?
1: We still have spotters around the country who are very helpful for us in flagging uh, particularly strong candidates. And we can, in some cases, make a unsolicited approach to those people. We always okay. protect the identity of the spotter. I don't know who my spotter was. I've got some suspects (laughs) on the faculty of the College of Law at the University of Iowa. Today, I don't know. We protect their identities for obvious reasons.
0: Of course. Today,
1: it is a different application process. And you're right that today you don't exist in our system until you have an electronic identity. So everybody has to go through that initial portal. Now, if you've got people who are endorsing your candidacy up front, And that's made a matter of record that's helpful, but everybody has to submit an electronic application. And you're right, we do get a lot of applications, but it is still a very realistic goal to serve our country in the CI or some other agency in the intelligence community because the need is so great. Hmm. And Find young people, I think, uh, should uh, look at this career path because it's uh, extremely rewarding and vitally important to the country's security that our best young men and women step forward uh, to do this kind of work. Our school at the Bush School uh, has been very successful in placing its graduates into the intelligence community, not solely in the CIA, although we had success there, but also across the board through the intelligence community.
0: So speaking of the Bush School, um, so upon leaving uh, service with the CIA, uh, I understand you were meant to actually uh, go elsewhere and teach, yes. uh, but I understand you got tapped up once again, this time uh, by none other than uh, President Bush uh, himself, senior, um, as I understand it, uh, requested that you join uh, Texas A&M and that you help develop the curriculum there for counterintelligence, is that the case?
1: That's right. When President Bush, 41, the father, Mm -hmm. decided to put his presidential library and museum at Texas A&M. He wanted to have a school of government with his name on it as part of that complex. From the beginning, since he was such a strong advocate of the CIA and the intelligence community in general, he wanted to make certain that intelligence was part of the curriculum of this new school of government. I met my, my my wife, Meredith, the CIA, and we were familiar with uh, the Bushes, of course, and I had briefed him when he was president and vice president. We worked under him when he was the director of the CIA. Mm-hmm. So we were known to him. He called the director of the CIA as the school was being established. It was George Tenet at the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He said, George, I'm setting up the school of government down at Texas A&M. I want have intelligence to be part of it. I want you to send somebody down to set up an intelligence studies program. And then he was nice enough to ask if I personally was available to do that. That was not in our planning. Mm. Meredith and I had really planned on retiring undercover. It's so much easier, so much safer, frankly. And If you go to a university, of course, you have to be overt that meant we had to come out from undercover. But it was such an honor to have asked by a former president of the United States to serve on the faculty of his school, that when we came down here, we decided that, all right, we will accept the consequences of coming out from undercover, which are considerable. And we pledged two years to President Bush. He said, Mr. President, Meredith and I will come down here, we will do everything we can. We will get this program set up. And then in two years, we're going to move back to Washington. He said, fine, Jim, that's perfect. Well,
0: that was 22 years ago. Yeah, it's, a, yeah, it's like the CIA. Two-year <laughs> plan turns yeah. into- the third-
1: true that Texas a and immediately captured us, you know, the values, the Bush School, its mission of preparing young people for careers in public service. And as it turned out, I could not have asked for a more fulfilling second career. And then to be able to build this intelligence studies program was a dream come true for me. And to prepare young people to follow in nurse in, in my footsteps is about as good as it can get.
0: Yeah, uh, I mean, from reading your book, it is clear you have such a passion and keen mind for the processes and how to do things really at an elite level so i can just imagine how rich uh and full of detail your uh your courses are uh that you teach Uh, one thing before we move into some of this other stuff you talk about having to come out and be overt now when for so many decades apparently as it is with uh everyone in the cia no one knows what you do you're you have an official cover and if I saw somewhere correctly in doing my research, when you announced, of course, that you were going to be doing this and you came out, your, your children didn't even know that you were with the CIA, let alone chief of counterintelligence. Is that the case?
1: That's the case. Our parents did not know. Our children did not know. None of our friends knew. And you can imagine what a shock it was to all those people after 31 years for us to have to come clean. Yeah. <laughs> lying to everybody mm-hmm. at that time. And our real concern initially was with our parents, that they would be hurt. Okay. We had concealed that information from them for many years, but both sets of parents, Meredith and mine, took it the right way, and that was that they were, they were proud of what we'd been doing. Uh, in fact, they thanked us for not telling us sooner.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they would have been worried
1: sick. Yeah, when you were in those foreign countries, we would want to know you were the CIA, what you were doing. Yeah, it was quite a shock to everybody. It was traumatic for Meredith and me. By coming out from undercover, uh, your your future travel is limited. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is, everything we do overseas is illegal. We break foreign countries' laws. Espionage is a crime in every country. So we are not able to travel to certain countries. Right. I will not be traveling to Russia anytime soon. Uh, We would be subject to arrest, of course. Uh, Then there are some personal safety issues. There are a lot of people that hate the CIA Mm -hmm. in this area of targeted killing. So that has been a bit of a factor, and there have been a few issues here and there. There are some bad people out there. There are some sick people out there. And if you've got somebody who's openly walking around, Meredith and I are in that category, uh, admitting we were in the CIA, you you attract some unpleasant uh, approaches.
0: Yeah, I could imagine. And uh certainly in in the days uh of the Edward Snowdens and, and this kind of thing, which we'll I want to get into that with you in a little bit, uh just a question or two on that. But um let's kind of dive in a little bit. Um now getting into some of the, you know, we talk about the threats. You mentioned that at the beginning, uh the threats to our country. And um I'm going to, you know, I think, you know, if we talk about what you say in the book and how you express this in the book, it's very powerful. Um, So I'm going to quote you, uh, because as you said, few Americans realize the extent, uh, and I quote, to which foreign intelligence services are stealing our most important secrets right here at home, right under our noses. America is hemorrhaging its vital secrets and sensitive technology, and we are not doing nearly enough to stop it. How many more traders like Clyde Lee Conrad, Jonathan Pollard, Chi Mack, Edward Lee Howard, and Anna Montez do we need before we begin to take betrayal from within more seriously? So that is, I mean, you know, that's a stern, stern admonition. And what I'm, I'm curious about is why aren't we taking it more seriously?
1: I stand by all of that. It is a very, very serious problem our country faces. I don't know why we aren't taking it more seriously. I think maybe we've become complacent. We feel that we are not directly threatened. So much of this is invisible Mm -hmm. and people aren't aware of it. And even when it's exposed, it's sometimes pushed under the carpet. Even when we catch the Chinese, we don't really hold them accountable to the extent that we should. Uh, The Russians are out there. I think people kind of have the attitude that this is just the way life is here. Mm -hmm. Everybody spies on everybody else. Let's just accept that that is our new reality. I don't accept that as a new reality. And it's intensifying. The pace, the level of espionage against the United States is accelerating. What the Chinese are doing alone is several magnitudes greater than what we've ever encountered before. The Chinese are assaulting the United States through espionage, through covert action, through cyber. It's unprecedented, and it is unacceptable. And my book is a, is a call to arms, a wake-up call, I hope, that we need to do more. We need to take this more seriously. The technology we're losing is undermining our market shares, our jobs, our competitive advantage around the world, and all these technologies in which we excel. It's costing us billions and billions of dollars a year Not to mention the effect it has on our national security. I cannot think of a single Chinese weapon system that I've seen in the last 10, 15 years that is not based entirely or primarily on stolen U.S. technology.
0: That is amazing.
1: The Chinese, like many other countries, including some of our friends, have discovered that Stealing the world's leader's technology, the United States technology, is a lot faster and cheaper than doing your own R&D. And that's what's happening, particularly from China. I do not know a single counterintelligence expert in any Western country who will say anything different. If you ask them, what is the number one counterintelligence threat that your country faces? The answer is always the same, China, China. China. If I could start my career all over again, Lawrence, and I would love to, I would do everything I could to get into the China, into the China program at the CIA mm-hmm. to learn Mandarin and become a China counterintelligence expert, because that's the future. That's where the threat lies.
0: It's uh, you know, you describe it as being staggering. And when I, uh, when I read what you said there about um, the Chinese being uh, in a class all by themselves in terms of espionage and covert action and cyber capabilities, you know, how you describe the enormity of the Chinese espionage uh, effort. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that, as you say, um, military experts agree that there is no significant Chinese weapon system that is not based on, as you say, Stolen U.S. technology. So this is, and you say it's getting worse. Yes. Right. You said it's accelerating, and yeah. it's and it's getting worse. Yes. Um. Ha- so how is it? How can you describe how it's actually getting worse,
1: specifically with regard to China? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, for one thing, cyber has been a game changer. Okay. And as I'm sure you know, the Chinese have these information warfare centers all around China, and their task is to hack into U.S. databases in the high-tech community, in the government, in the natural laboratories, in our research universities, anywhere where research development is being done, that is better than what the Chinese are doing. And they are voracious. It's not just military secrets. It's just not military technology anything that relates to the industrial technology, anything that has to do with improved agricultural methods, medical secrets, industrial secrets, they'll go after it all. Anything to enhance the Chinese economy, the industry. Uh, Of course, military applications are number one, but by no means do they overlook all these other avenues. The other thing that we see that increases the threat is that the Chinese intelligence services are becoming more brazen, more aggressive. It used to be that they pretty much limited their recruitment efforts against Americans to Chinese Americans. They would play the ethnic card. Okay. And they would hope to find Chinese Americans who had a, cultural affinity still with China, who spoke the language, who were proud of what China's accomplished, maybe who still had family living on the mainland, they would approach them through that mechanism, trying to draw them into a relationship with Mother China. And they would cast it in any different ways they could, but they would play on that ethnicity. Lately, they have not limited themselves to that and they have expanded their targeting community to non-ethnic Chinese. I mean, just look at people like Glenn Duffy Schreiber, or Candace Claiborne, mm. or Kevin Mallory, or Ron Hansen. These are not ethnic Chinese, but they have done grave damage. Now on the ethnic side, they have big success in simply appealing to the loyalty of these people, residual loyalty for China. Mm-hmm. on the non-ethnic side it's always money and i don't want this word to get
0: out too widely but they pay well <laughs> okay. they pay big bucks well um you know again if you're comparing so you know in terms of because you know it's interesting how you go into the um uh, the goal or the mission of are big uh, of some of the biggest threats from foreign intelligence agencies. You describe China's goal as stealing technology. That's their that's their their the main impetus behind the way you describe it behind their espionage activities. It's to it's to steal U.S. tech, and um, I guess as you said, when you're comparing R and D budgets versus what they have to pay uh, to turn someone. And to aspire for them, it's it's night and day as far as the re- uh, return on investment, correct?
1: It's a bargain. It's a bargain. Uh, we're talking about research that's worth millions, if not billions of dollars. It's across the board. You've seen recently that the Chinese were caught trying to get into databases to steal COVID-19 virus research yes. made by the United States. Even in my home state of Iowa, the Chinese were caught stealing hybrid corn seed technology because what we had developed in Iowa would increase the yields in China considerably if they could get their hands on that protected proprietary technology. It's it's massive. It's pervasive.
0: So given the threat China poses, um, especially to our technology assets, and to private technology companies in the U.S. I, I was curious about this. I'm not sure you go into it in the book, but uh, to your knowledge, does do the American technology uh, companies, the top technology companies in America, and I'm not talking about the defense contractors, right? So I'm not talking about Lockheed and Raytheon, which I could imagine would have this, but do those that are maybe on the fine line between dual-use technology that could be military or private sector, um, are those co- do those companies employ a counterintelligence department within their organizations? They usually have a
1: security component, but counterintelligence specifically is relatively rare. That would be reserved for the, the government contractors the national laboratories, places like that. Okay the level of awareness is low in the uh, corporate community wow and they are eager for markets they are eager for eager for sales right uh, chinese are very skilled at manipulating that desire for profits on the part of american companies gradually to get the technology the research away from them it mm. starts out on an unclassified basis before long to continue doing business with China, to continue to have these lucrative contracts, uh, they are under considerable pressure to give more, to give more, to reveal more, to set up joint laboratories, to set up research centers, to accept positions as consultants. Uh, It's insidious, but it's a very, very calculated process that they use and unfortunately uh, too many American companies have succumbed to that or individuals within those companies have mm. succumbed to
0: that. Yeah, we see a lot of that. Um, so you described the big three uh, intelligence agents, uh, threats by intelligence agencies to the United States. You described China as by far number one. Yes. Next on the list is, is Russia. Yes. Uh, and you differentiate... Uh, the very interesting difference in their mission and goals versus the, the mission of the Chinese. The Russians don't seem to be too bothered by trying to steal our technology. They actually have a different mission in mind. Can you describe that uh, for our audience?
1: I think that's an excellent question because I do see a distinction in the motivation for spying from China as opposed to the motivation from Russia. For China... It is pure self-interest. It's to develop their economy and their industry and their military. It's not personal. It's not even ideological. It's business. But for the Russians, it's different. For the Russians, it is personal. It's spiteful. Vladimir Putin is obsessed with America. Mm. And he feels a lot of malice toward America for whatever reason. So what he is doing is completely different. His motivation is to harm America. And he loves sticking to the United States every chance he gets. I first became aware of Vladimir Putin when he was a lieutenant colonel with the KGB in East Germany. Okay, We were tracking him. We knew already what he was way back then. We knew he was a ruthless killer. We knew he was a man with no scruples whatsoever. And I personally consider him even more dangerous today than he was back then. Now the Russians level of espionage in the United States as a result is as high or higher than it ever was during the Cold War. They're coming after our military secrets, our political secrets primarily, arms control secrets, that kind of thing. They will steal technology also if they can get their hands in it. Mm -hmm. But it is not the number one objective. And it has a completely different animus toward us than I saw in uh, the Chinese.
0: Yeah. You, to to quote you in the book, you describe their objectives as to harass, to discredit, to disrupt. Yes. To deceive. Yes. uh, And, uh, to weaken oh, so, uh, yeah sorry go ahead
1: yeah to weaken yeah that's that's their objective they think that through this covert action these subtle things that they do they can somehow weaken our political process mm-hmm. weaken our commitment to our country uh, loyalty uh, they want to undermine the rationale that uh, our people should feel towards supporting our country
0: so this is so this is a uh, the personal vendetta of an old k g b spy it is uh, an ideological battle right. um and of course uh, much like yourself, there are cold warriors still within putin right being one of them, he worked with the um i think he cut his teeth with the uh uh east german stasi mm-hmm. uh, as if i if i understand correctly started there. Right, so, so, there are a lot of cold warriors still in, in power over there that certainly uh, feel the sting of America uh, bringing down the wall in Germany, ending communism, defeating uh, the Soviet uh, bear.
1: We're still their superpower rival. Uh, they are competing with us in various arenas around the country in Syria, Iran. Iraq, all through the Middle East. Uh, They have not gone away, and we take them very seriously. Mm. Uh, We would be very naive to think that the Russian espionage infrastructure has ever gone away or has changed its colors. It has not. Most of the people that rolled over into the new FSB and the SFR were old KGB people. It wasn't like Eastern Europe where the communists were all thrown out under the new democratic governments. In Russia, they stayed. And their attitudes toward the United States uh, are very much colored by that even today.
0: Interesting. Now, the third biggest threat was, to to be fair, uh, and I remember when they were a big looming threat uh, uh, I grew up, uh, you know, as a kid uh, in the early 70s. So uh, for me, you know, the the Cuban Missile Crisis was, you know, was a fresh uh, issue uh, growing up, and Cuba loomed large uh, as a, you know as an ideological enemy of the United States. But today, to 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 think and to know, and for all these years, again not knowing this, but the third biggest threat has been Cuba. Uh, very surprisingly, I'm going to quote you here, because it's, it, was, it was quite surprising. And again, if I didn't know this, there's so many people that don't understand that. To quote you, pound for pound, the Cuban DGI may be the most effective intelligence service that US counterintelligence faces. It cannot compete with the Chinese or the Russians in terms of overall damage to US national security. But that is primarily a function of its smaller size and narrower objectives. We are lucky that Cuba is as small as it is because otherwise we would be in big, big trouble. Can you please elaborate on the threat and the superiority of the Cuban intelligence uh, services?
1: Oh, Don't get me started on Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> I worked a lot in my career against the DGI, against Cuba in general. They are a very formidable adversary. They were very professional. They were very disciplined. And they had a vendetta against the United States. Castro focused all of his efforts in national security to bringing down his Yankee neighbor, to attacking us. They were impenetrable. They were tough. We had very little success against them. We underestimated them, and we paid a real price for that. I stand by my ranking of the Cubans as the number one intelligence, or number three intelligence threat to the United States today. When Castro died, in 2016, mm-hmm. my great hope and the hope of a lot of intelligence professionals was that, that the system would crumble, would fall apart the way Eastern Europe did, and that the door would be open. We'd get access to former DGI officers who were scurrying around looking for retirement security, or would be getting access to their archives. People would be selling his documents. And we would get a good inside look finally mm-hmm what the Cubans have been doing to us since the early 1960s under Castro. That didn't happen. Miguel Diaz Canel is as hardline as Stalinist a communist as Fidel ever was. Wow. He's and he's holding it together. And the DI, as it's now called, is still focused very, very almost exclusively on the United States. And they're causing a lot of mischief. And I'm getting tired of hearing about, you know, people like a, a Philip Agee or an Anna Montans mm. or the, the Myers, Kendall and Gwendolyn Myers, uh, the Avispa spies. Uh, the Cubans have penetrated our government. They are all over South Florida. If you go to South Florida today and you know where to tune in Mm -hmm. on shortwave dial, Mm -hmm. you can hear this sultry female Cuban voice reading off numbers. And that is the DI communicating with its agents and its illegals in the United States of America. And they are very aggressive and conducting a lot of operations. And I don't like the way they do it. You know they're they're vicious. Uh, How so? They uh, you know killed the the pilots who were going to uh, Cuba on humanitarian missions. They have killed people around the world. Uh, you know they have leased themselves out as surrogate armies for so-called freedom fighters around the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're all over Venezuela. Uh, We know their role in in Nicaragua with the Sandinistas. We know what they did in in Angola and elsewhere in Africa. They've been a thorn in our side forever. Uh, And I've had enough of it. Uh, And what really annoys me is is that they beat us. I mentioned in the book, To Catch a Spy, that one quiet Sunday afternoon, when I was chief of station in Vienna, mm-hmm. I got a call from the Marine Guard and he used the parole we'd set up to indicate that there was a walk-in at the embassy. So mm-hmm. I drove, not expecting much because most walk-ins did not prove to be of much value. As I walked in, I saw two Latino-looking people sitting on the lobby. Mm-hmm. I walk up to the Marine desk, corporal, what do we have? Two Cuban official passports. The gentleman was Florentino Aspiaga-Longa. Wow Wow is right. A high-ranking DI officer. The first real look we'd ever had into the DI or the DGI earlier. He had been the head of the uh, DI station in Prague. He and his teenage girlfriend were on the run. They came to Vienna. They wanted a new life for themselves in America. And he started telling us everything that they had been doing against us. It was staggering, to use your word again, uh, the success that they would had against us. And of course, the most shameful success was, as we learned, the Cuban DGI had doubled all 38 recruitments that we CI thought we made on island against Cubans. They controlled them all. We were duped. They were all doubles.
0: Unbelievable. And it was a
1: masterful performance by the DI. Then of course, once Aspiaga blew it out of the water, Castro used it as a, as a uh, public uh, shame of, the United, of the, C- the United States and the CIA for having fallen for their double agent operations. So, the Cubans are uh, have been bombarding radio waves against American personnel in Nevada. We don't know exactly what they're doing, but we do know that it was harmful to the health of our personnel. Uh, And in the book, I say, we don't know in the intelligence community what exactly they're doing. Are they activating listening devices? Are they trying to mask some of their own devices? Mm -hmm. What are they doing? And I concluded based on my Long-held feelings about the Cubans—that they could have been doing it simply to harm the health of Americans—they are that hateful toward America. And so I—I I asked funny. you not to get me started because I lose my cool when I start talking about Cuba, because I have no use for the Cubans whatsoever. <laughs> uh, and I will—I will dance. I will celebrate
0: when <laughs> communism
1: finally call, <laughs> ends in Cuba, and freedom returns, and we can find out what it is that he have been doing to us over the years. Can I guarantee you, we only know the tip of the iceberg. Amazing. Amazing. They're much better than the KGB ever was in terms of discipline. As you term, say, in terms of tradecraft, in terms of professionalism.
0: As you say in the book, the KGB taught them, but then uh, like Socrates and Plato, right? The, the student became the master.
1: That's right. It's a good analogy. Yeah, that's true.
0: Phenomenal. Um, before I want to I want to move on to your Ten Commandments, but before I do that, um, one other question because we talk about you know threats, what a lot of people don't perceive as a threat, um, and you know maybe it's a low level threat, but nevertheless, a lot of people would be surprised to know that our allies spy on us as well. Uh, So can you speak a little bit towards the spying that is done by many of our uh, of our closest allies, uh, except for maybe uh, the special relationship we have with uh, the UK?
1: Yeah. Everybody pretty much spies on everybody else. Uh,
0: The only real
1: exceptions to the United States are what we call the five I countries. Uh You know, the UK, Canada, Australia. New Zealand, and to Canada, Canada, to Mitchell, Canada, UK, yes. Australia. Yeah, the five
0: countries. That's right. And countries. you call it the five eyes. I, that's right.
1: The five eyes. By formal agreement, we don't spy on them, and they don't spy on us. And that's that's been respected over the years. It's a beautiful thing, this collaboration we have with the powerful intelligence services those other countries and the sharing that goes on. We're all stronger as a result. Other than that, all bets are off. (laughs) Even the Israelis, our dear friends, our close allies got caught with their hand in the cookie jar. But it's not the only espionage operation that the Israelis have run against the United States. Uh, They risked this, this bilateral relationship when they saw low hanging fruit in Jonathan Pollard and he gave them valuable intelligence Uh, And, of course, it's all been blown out of the water. But that is a wake-up call to all of us that you can't take anybody for granted. Uh, If the temptation is great enough and the gain is perceived as great enough, uh, everybody will spy uh, on everybody else. And the allies are like the Chinese in that they're after our technology. They want to steal technology that gives them a competitive edge things that are more advanced than what they're doing that they neither copy or uh, or surpass uh, in their own laboratories so that's the thrust of the f- so-called friendly spying uh, and it is across the board and uh, you know we're pretty adult about it mm-hmm. uh, when we catch a friend so-called spying on us you know, we'll slap their wrist we'll tell them that we're going to withhold the liaison relationship for a short time. Mm-hmm. We all get over it. We, we, we accept the reality that everybody spies on everybody else, you know, mm. and the United States can't get on the soapbox right. and claim any kind of moral superiority right. because who is the leading power in the world in spying on France? Gotcha. <laughs> it's us. It's us, you know, Okay. the five eyes, get a pass, but, uh, you know, it's, it's well documented that the CIA is very, very aggressive. That was one of the most damaging relation, uh, revelations of Snowden, the extent to which, which we were spying on France, you know, including the Germans and the French, and they had uh, ap- apoplectic fits as a result. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, their hands aren't clean either. You know, of course, I found it ironic that the French and the Germans complained so much about are spying on them when we can document chapter and verse on what they've been doing to us over the years, particularly the French.
0: Speaking now of Snowden. So um, many, uh, many in the media uh, view Snowden as uh, a hero or as some kind of counterculture icon or um, they They view him as someone who they, they view him as a whistleblower who um identified the fact that we were not only spying on our allies which put that aside uh but uh were especially where the n s a was concerned supposedly allegedly um spying on american citizens and this is what um you know what is part of his narrative uh and why so many look upon him favorably. What we don't often get perspective on, which I would like to do now with you, is you know, speak to, speak to the truth of who Snowden is and uh, what he did to this country uh, from a patriot's perspective and also from an intelligence agency's perspective.
1: Snowden's a traitor. I have contempt for Edward Snowden. He did grave damage to our country's security. He had no right to do what he did. He violated his oath. I don't care what his motives were, he had other channels to express his dissent from what the country was doing, what the government was doing. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a coincidence when he's on the run. Where did he go first? To China. Mm-hmm. where he was drained of everything that he had. Mm-hmm. And where is he now? In Russia, protected by our archenemy, Vladimir Putin. Uh, now I have no use for people who hold Snowden up as some kind of a heroic whistleblower who did a valuable service to the American people. What he did do to the American people was to harm our national security, harm our intelligence capabilities. He gave up sources and methods. He really complicated our lives. I don't think it's an exaggeration. I've heard this point made by people in active duty now mm-hmm. that the information that he provided cost American lives. People who were out there on the front lines, collecting intelligence were put at risk because of the revelations that Snowden made. I hope he rots over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, if he ever came back to the United States, I would assume that he would be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. When Manning was pardoned, I'll tell you, there was a ripple of real concern that ran through the entire intelligence community. Right. Is Snowden next? Will he be pardoned? And thank goodness he wasn't, because what he did was despicable. Um, have I made my feelings about Snowden sufficiently clear? <laughs> Contempt. I think... I. Uh, He's actually beneath contempt. Beneath
0: Powerful words, but uh, I think they need to be heard because we we so often get a uh, far different narrative about who this individual is. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, so let's let's go into let's talk about your ten commandments uh, mm-hmm. for counterintelligence. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll I'll mention them. Uh, and we'll go down one by one, and I'd love to get uh, your synopsis on what each one means. I of course I'll do that. Powerful stuff. So, um, so let's start with the first commandment. So the first commandment is be offensive. So it's, okay. yeah. <laughs> it's a great, that's a great way to kick things off. Be yeah. offensive. So let's, let's look at that. What does that mean?
1: I think it's probably the greatest of my, my commandments and uh, I shouldn't, uh, take any particular pride, these are just the results of my experience over the years doing counterintelligence, mm-hmm. some pointers that I would like to make available to anybody who's interested. Be offensive means that counterintelligence cannot be passive and defensive. We can't just hunker down behind our fences and keep our information safe in our safes and uh, our databases protected by my passwords and all that. We lose on that basis. The only successful counterintelligence long run has to take the action to them. And when I say be offensive, I mean counterintelligence that goes after our adversaries, attacks them. I want the word to get out, Lawrence, that U.S. counterintelligence is effective, it's motivated, and it's highly aggressive. Uh, The first tenet of offensive counterintelligence is the most important counterintelligence there is, is penetration. Mm -hmm. We have got to penetrate foreign intelligence services. For every American spying against us, there are foreign intelligence officers who know the identity of that person. We've got to find them. We've got to recruit them. We've got to find inducements that convince them that it's worth their while to give those names to us. The truth is, in counterintelligence, that very few American spies have been caught over the years without a source inside the sponsoring foreign intelligence service. We need to do a better job of recruiting those people. We call that hanging out the shingle. Okay. We should spread the word far and wide that American counterintelligence is open for business and has deep pockets. If you're concerned about your financial security, we have a solution. Just give us those names. And I want us to see a lot more aggressive job of doing that. I think there should be special bonuses for CIA case officers or FBI special agents who recruit foreign intelligence officers. We need to go get them. And we need to push a lot harder. The second prong of offensive counterintelligence, this is one I go into great detail. Yes, get this by because I believe in it so strongly, that's double agent operations. We need to be flooding the Chinese and the Russians, the Cubans, other hostile intelligence services with double agents. We need to make them gun shy. We need, need to make them stop and think that the next American they recruit may be, may be controlled. And we're not doing enough of that. As you saw in the book, I call double agents the caviar, Yes, I saw it. <laughs> because in my experience, there's nothing juicy or more delectable than a good double agent operation. We don't have time for it here, but in the book, I have a whole chapter on what yeah. the benefits of a good double agent operation are. And they're considerable. Uh, and it's an untapped resource that I think we should do a lot more against. So penetrate and
0: run double agent operations. Fantastic. And uh, if we do have some time at the end, there was one or two questions I wanted to ask you on that because you, you, do, have, you do devote a significant amount of time in the book to that, and it is absolutely brilliant stuff. Um, it's,
1: inside, it's inside baseball, isn't
0: it? <laughs> it really is. I'll tell you what. Um, the second commandment, honor your professionals.
1: i professionals have not received the credit that they are due, in my opinion we have been discredited, we have not received the awards that we should have for our successes. Uh, for many, many years, counterintelligence was considered a less than desirable career path. The people weren't awarded pro- rewarded properly. That was true over at the FBI, it was true at the CIA. And a lot of that was the, our own doing because by our excesses, mm-hmm. our abuses, under James Jesus Angleton at CIA and J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI. We deserve to lose our reputation for probity. We, we, we didn't do a very good job, and we didn't always do it uh, following all the regulations we should have. We got ourselves in trouble. So the result was that counterintelligence became kind of the refuge of the underperformers, mm-hmm. of the mediocre people, uh, okay. The best people did not go into counterintelligence. When I first joined the CIA, the word was out, Jim, don't go anywhere near counterintelligence. Wow. It's a career dead ender. So I kind of find it kind of ironic that I not only ended up there, but consider it the, the, uh, the most attractive part of this whole profession. But we need to do a better job of making certain that our counterintelligence profession, professionals are respected appropriately.
0: You mention the abuses of uh, James Angleton, uh, and you mention him a lot in the book, yes. um, which is, you know, he's, he's quite a fascinating character um, yeah. in uh, CIA lore. And you even, uh, you know, I, I know in the book you describe meeting uh, meeting him, but um, can you expand a little bit on who he was and how he tarnished counterintelligence? Um, for the CIA.
1: Yeah. Well, it's true that I think Angleton's legacy uh, destroyed counterintelligence to the CIA. Angleton was a patriot. He believed in our country. But he fell prey to overzealousness. And that is an occupational hazard for us in counterintelligence. Angleton believed that his mission to protect America was so important that he could use any methods available to him to pursue that end, legal or not. Mm. And it was very easy for Angleton to roam into the illegal side. You know, things like MH Chaos, Hanatol, uh, some of the other abuses under Angleton. You cannot excuse. He believed that he was doing good things, but he believed he was above the law. So when you do a steady diet of counterintelligence and you mire yourself into conspiracy and doublethink, you can lose your bearings. Paranoia creeps in and it definitely crept in with Angleton and his subordinates. They began to see ghosts everywhere. The Russians were 10 feet tall. They are everywhere. Our country has penetrated and it really colored their judgment. Uh, and the, the end result was he did a real disservice by discrediting counterintelligence as a real sensible profession.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he also ruined our Russian operations program for the 20 years that he was in power because he believed that the Russians were so good that every Russian was controlled. Any recruitment that we thought we made, he didn't allow us to run because it was being a double. It was doubled. Right. And, all defectors were bad, by definition. Uh, so we had no sources. 20 critical years of the Cold War, we were blind from human intelligence because Angleton was too smart to fall into their traps. Uh, so those are, those are the things that, that Angleton did to undermine the effectiveness of counterintelligence. And it took us a long time to recover from that, mm. to rehabilitate counterintelligence as, as a profession.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh I mean clearly a lot of, again, a lot of people uh are not aware of Angleton, the Angleton era, and what you guys went through to restore integrity and credibility uh to counterintelligence. So um, kudos on being able to uh you know to come out of that and uh you know really be perceived as uh a, an elite service uh again within uh it was
1: important to do that. Yeah, A country needs a good, good, strong counterintelligence.
0: So then we got the third commandment. I love this one. Own the street. That's right. What's own the street about?
1: It's about surveillance. Good counterintelligence requires us to have the ability to go on the street and to surveil suspects, foreign intelligence officers, to have them take us to their operations. But if we go on the street, we have to be better than anybody else who's there. Poor surveillance is worse than no surveillance at all. Mm. Consequences of getting made if you have an amateur team out there can be considerable. The subjects can flee if he or she detects that uh, there's surveillance out there. A foreign intelligence officer, particularly an illegal, will go to ground if they see surveillance. Surveillance is exceedingly difficult. It is really hard to do. It's not for amateurs. And we need to make certain that when we go out there, we literally own the street, that we control everything in the environment. And unfortunately, in the past, we've not been very good at that. We've relied on kind of pickup teams. Everybody gets a little bit of surveillance training. Mm -hmm. Surveillance is so specialized. When I was training surveillance teams, I did not put them into the fray on the street against professional intelligence officers, targets for at least a year. Well, wow. they had to be trained up. They had to run against a sophisticated target and not be, not be made. Uh, I would run against them myself because of my experience. And that, that was fun, I enjoyed doing that. Um, and I would determine when they were ready. Uh, and it takes a long time uh, to get them up to the skill level to own the street. The FBI does a really good job in the United States, but they invest a lot of time and resources into uh, preparing their people and giving them the, the equipment that they need to do a good job. They're world class. Uh, but over the years, CI surveillance on the street, uh, military surveillance on the street, and even some FBI surveillance on the street was not up to the task. Uh, we needed to fix that. Own the
0: street. Okay. Excellent. Um, and then we have uh, the fourth commandment, know your history. Yeah.
1: I don't care what your profession is. It seems to me that you have a personal and professional obligation to know your literature. And I'm frankly shocked when I talk to young counterintelligence officers today and realize how little they know about the history of counterintelligence and the significant cases that have occurred. How can you learn from these past cases unless you know what mistakes were made, what was done well, how you can duplicate what was done well and avoid the pitfalls of the past? And a lot of that, knowing your history, requires you to do it on your own time, at home. You should be doing your professional reading. (coughs) I think one of the most Helpful, I hope valuable parts of my book is an appendix. Yes at the end where I give 25 capsule reviews Of counterintelligence books that had an impact on me personally and professional and I recommend it to Current professionals in the field, but also anybody who might be interested in coming into this field as a counterintelligence professional There's good literature out there But people have not read it They don't know these cases you ask a young counterintelligence professional today, well, where do you stand on the Galitzin nosinco controversy? And Too often you get a blank stare. Wow. You know, do you think your chinko was bona fide? Blank stare. Or no really significant professional insight into it because they have not taken the trouble to know their history. That's got to be a professional responsibility that every, everyone takes on.
0: Now, is, is, is that taught at uh, the Bush School? Is that part of the curriculum? Is there a history of counterintelligence course?
1: Oh, you bet, Lawrence. You know, and uh, when our graduates go into the workplace, they tell me over and over again that all the instructors, all their colleagues are blown away by how well-prepared our people are. And that, of course, is music to my ears. Because that's our mission in our intelligence studies program. When they leave our program, they are good to go. They know their history. And they know their methodology. They know the principles of good counterintelligence. So they're, they're ready to go.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what. If, if I had to do it all over again, I'd, I'd be seeing you at the, uh, at the Bush <laughs> school.
1: Yeah, come on down. Come on down. <laughs>
0: um, so we got the fifth commandment. Do not ignore analysis. now, this one um, surprised me um, mm-hmm. because in that chapter or in that uh, commandment, you talk about how uh, counterintelligence analysis in the United States has historically been the weakest part yes. of, of, counterintel- of of counterintelligence business. Yes. Um, wow. Uh, I, that was something I didn't expect. I always, you know, again, if you're a lay person and you, you know, you're a fan of counterintelligence of, of spy films and novels, and you know, you think of the analyst piece, wasn't uh Jack Ryan, right? Jack Ryan, Tom Clancy's character was an analyst who went, okay. who got into the field and you think of analysts as, so I was very surprised to to hear that. So tell us about how, what, well, Tell us why it's so important and and where it's lacking.
1: For many, many years, analysis was undervalued. The operators received most of the resources, most of the attention. That's where the glory was. Everybody wanted to be an operator. And there was this myth many, many years ago that has persisted, that a good operator can do his or her own analysis And that's not true. Analysts and operators are different kinds of people. A good analyst has a different thought process. And to be a good analyst requires specialized training in methodologies. And we weren't getting that. We were really good at collecting. We had good operators. Take NSA, for example. They did a magnificent job of collecting all that electronic intelligence that was out there to be grabbed. It was fantastic. But where did they fall down? They didn't have enough analysts to make sense of it, to convert it into decimital intelligence, to brief it to the policymakers so they could benefit from this gold mine that was collected. So a lot of it was underutilized or even not utilized at all. Wow. Wow! So NSA, NSA belatedly we're talking within the last 15 years or so, discovered that it needed to upgrade tremendously its analytical components. Same thing happened at the FBI. Special agents were their own analysts. They did not have an analytical career path that really was very attractive. They've corrected that. And now you can be very successful as an analyst at the FBI. The CIA, I think, has been better, but I also felt that we did not give analysts their full due, mm. and uh, we need to do a better job of training them in that specialized, arcane skill of taking a lot of data and extracting the nuggets that are valuable for our policymakers. I am happy to say that I think most, most of that has been corrected now. Okay. In the military as well. Uh, They have improved their analytical capabilities. So I think now we we have the kind of the rough parity between analysis and operations that I think is the healthiest. Analysis is power. A good analyst going through surveillance data or signals intercepts or intelligence reports or open source uh, targeting information can turn up some amazing things that we operators would miss. Bob Gates was a career analyst. He had a very successful career, uh, needless to say. Um, but Bob and I are different kinds of people. Mm. We think differently. He's got skills that I don't have. And I think I have some operational aptitudes that he probably didn't have to the same degree. So uh, you can't you can't expect people to do the other's job. It's, they're two separate. They're too, they're too different. So
0: yeah, I do not ignore analysis. I'm such a huge believer in that. Um, And if you see the motto within our logo of the alpha human podcast, you can see victory through insight, right? Victory through insight. You have to have that insight Intel data information is uh, you know, just a potluck soup. Uh, unless you dig in and develop actionable intelligence and insights. Well, I, love, worthless. I love
1: people like you because uh, I consider you more thoughtful, more cerebral. You write better, you brief better, uh, you analyze better. Uh, and it is an absolutely indispensable part of the process. Okay. So Powerful.
0: Do not ignore analysis. Great stuff. Great stuff. Okay. Sixth commandment, do not be parochial. What's that about?
1: What, that, what that's about is, is that for many years, we were our own worst enemy by not cooperating with other agencies. We were very possessive of what we were collecting. We didn't even always trust our colleagues and other agencies. The FBI, CI, lack of trust that I talked about that reigned for, for far too many years is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a tendency to kind of denigrate uh, your colleagues and other agencies, to badmouth them, even to ridicule their their failures, their shortcomings, to hold yourself up as superior, uh, not to treat them as the, the equal partners that they that they are, uh, and that's very destructive. We're not serving the American people as a community if we're not working together. If we're not collaborating, if we're not drawing on the best that each agency can contribute to the process, uh, that had to be broken down because the tendency was to be parochial. Uh, I think we've done a lot more community wide things now. The mm-hmm. training, I think bringing us all together under the DNI structure has some salutary effects in that regard. Uh, when I was on active duty, if I found one of my officers, uh, bad-mouthing the military or the FBI. I call him in and corrected him right away. They're as professional as we are. They have a, as equally valid mission as we do. And we're going to work together. We're going to respect them. And if you're not on board for that, you've got a big problem with me. Because mm. that's the only way to get this job done. What we do is hard. Counterintelligence is excruciatingly difficult. And the only real way to do it is together. Uh, and so I preach that, and I'm I'm pleased to see that that parochialism has, has broken down over the
0: years. This is this was one of the criticisms of uh, what came out of 9-11. Uh, yes. Right. Yes. The, the stove piping of, of of information, whether you're FBI, CIA, DIA, NSA. You know, all all of the different intelligence uh, agencies were not sharing the the because there's I mean it's human inst- it's natural human uh, um, uh, manners or instincts to be tribal and to uh, you know to have turf wars and to right so uh, now I understand that as you say under the new under the new program there it, there's a so there's a nat National Counterintelligence and Security Center? Yes. Right? Is that is, is that correct?
1: And that's interagency. You know, that is the trend to bring smart people from these various agencies together against a common objective. And everybody benefits from that cross-fertilization that you get dealing with people with slightly different backgrounds, slightly different viewpoints, slightly, slightly different methods, Uh the end result is far superior than we would get operating on our own. Yeah, I love that. I love that community-wide approach to to these problems.
0: And uh I think that dovetails nicely into your next commandment when we're talking about bringing everyone together um because uh the seventh commandment is train your people. Right? Yeah. Train your people. Um right. and you know I think from your I perspective
1: what we do What we do is so vitally important for the security and welfare of this country that we need to have the best possible performance from our people that we can get. And that means train them. Train them endlessly. Train them profoundly. Uh, And I think we're pretty good at that. Uh, When I was on active duty, it uh, was sometimes frankly a little bit irritating. You've got a mission to perform in your office, Mm-hmm. Counterintelligence, for example, you look around and many of your best people are off being trained somewhere because it is a constant process. We're always being updated. We're always being trained into new disciplines. And I think that's one of the best things that we in the intelligence community do. We invest in our people and we, we benefit from, from that greatly. Uh, I mean, there are some Neanderthals out there who think that if you go off for training, you're going off the line, you're on a boondoggle, you're not gonna really learn much that you didn't know already. Uh, But that's not true. Good training is essential and it's constant all throughout your career. Even our senior people should be going off for for refresher training in various fields. Uh, I think that's one of the strengths of the intelligence community, of the military. Uh, We are committed to training. And that's such a good thing.
0: You, you pointed out that a good bellwether of uh, whether or not counterintelligence uh, would be effective would be uh, the amount of training that it's doing. If, if training gets pulled back, that's a bellwether of, what's to, uh, of, you know, of what it portends, what, what's to come. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a good point because when you're in a crunch situation, if you've got a crisis going on, if there are demands for your people all around the world, one of the first things that you're tempted to do is to cut back on training. And I think that's a fool's bargain. I think that that's very short-sighted. Even in times of high crisis, we should not shortchange training because we'll pay for that later. Pay for that later.
0: Yeah. In fact, I think one of your concerns was, um, if i'm if i remember correctly it's the is it the ncix um, right where they wrapped in secu- uh, national security into counterintelligence um, big, big,
1: big mistake it diluted the mission it diverted resources away from pure counterintelligence into this broad basket of security you know fences around embassies the thickness of walls uh, secure spaces uh, that's not counterintelligence
0: mm-hmm.
1: so I, I was opposed to that and you saw that some other professionals also expressed very uh, vehement opposition to that uh, transition
0: Yeah, uh,
1: and that's one of my concerns Lawrence, is that the little by little counterintelligence is being eroded uh, we're being shipped away at uh, some of that's understandable because there are other vital threats to our security, proliferation, counterterrorism, counter narcotics, uh, organized crime—all those things demand personnel. Uh, I just wish that, in some cases, it wasn't at the cost of stealing personnel from counterintelligence.
0: You know, one of the reasons I was really looking forward to doing this uh, episode with you, uh, Jim, is because if the if the general public understands the threat that we face from the incessant spying of the chinese of the russians of the cubans of the north koreans and the iranians and the and america's and if they truly understood that how because most people don't know how much of a threat this is and how destabilizing it is to our superiority as the world superpower if that becomes part of the, no, you know, the, the public nomenclature, popular culture, if we understand that, then counterintelligence will be given its rightful due, its, its rightful budgets, its rightful attention.
1: Thank you for saying that. I couldn't agree more. I think our first line of defense in counterintelligence and in national security in general is a well-informed public. That's why people like me write these books, because we want to inform American public of what's really going on out there because the truth is that they, in general, don't have much of an idea of the extent of the the danger we face. Uh, Yeah. So we've got to to inform the public and we'll get the support when they realize how how violent it is that we get that support.
0: Hopefully we get that support before something drastic happens to, right? Um, That's always the danger. So this is a great segue into eight, right? Because if you look at the Eighth Commandment, right? Don't be shoved aside. (laughs) Tell us about don't be shoved aside.
1: Uh, Counterintelligence can be very inconvenient. Uh, People don't like us. We almost always bring nothing but bad news. We tell people why they can't do what they're doing or what they're doing is flawed. We're the skunk at the garden party. Wow, Uh, We're not popular and you know that going into it Uh, because our message is going to interfere with the smooth running of their operations. The operators don't want to have someone over looking over their shoulder. Right. And telling them that this operation has problems. It could be controlled. There are indicators. This operation is not producing what it should. You need to take another look at it. This person is not quite what he or she seems to be. They don't want to hear that Mm. because the bias on the part of the operators, they have their operations be good, to have the intelligence they produce to be valid. So they don't want to have naysayers. They don't want to have a hard, objective, outside look. And so you get stiff on them a lot. When we set up the counterintelligence center as an independent center where we going, we were going into the operating divisions to provide objective, unbiased counterintelligence support. They said, no, thank you. We prefer to do it ourselves.
0: Can you describe what, can you describe the center? Because a lot of people are not aware that you created, the CIA created this, this center uh, within.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This was a, an offshoot of the disrepute that counterintelligence had fallen into, Mm -hmm. that kind of lingering legacy from Angleton, that Mm -hmm. counterintelligence really wasn't uh, a a good solid career path. And the mission suffered as a result. Our counterintelligence was bad. Uh, Rick Ames could get away with what he did for so long because we did not have good counterintelligence soon enough. In the 80s, when you had the decade of the spies, Mm -hmm. finally people, including the director of the CIA, the director of the FBI, finally said, enough is enough. We're being had right and left. Where's our counterintelligence? (laughs) Well, Mr. Director, it's not very good. It's not properly organized. We don't have the best people in it. Fix it. And one of the bright decisions that was made, in my opinion, was, okay, we're going to fix it. We're going to make it as good as we can possibly make it. And that means that we need a center. We can't allow on a a closed, hermetic unit, just feeding on itself, people who are all the same, like-minded operators from the DO. We need to draw on the strengths that we have community-wide. So to get a center, we said, all right, do not ignore analysis. We need good counterintelligence analysis. Where are the best analysts? They're over in the Directorate of Intelligence, Directorate of Analysis. Where are the best security people? They're over in the Office of Security. Where are the best secret people? They're over at NSA. Where are the best law enforcement people? They're down at the FBI. So we brought all those different backgrounds those strings together, regardless of agencies. Wow. And it was a chemistry which was novel at the time. People said you can't do it. You're a different kind of people. You won't get along. You won't be even able to communicate with one another. Nonsense. And it blossomed. And we proved the concept uh, of the center. And it's been duplicated in other areas as well. So we are much stronger uh, by bringing all those different talents together. Uh, from the various organizations within the agency. So the counterintelligence center is a conglomerate of a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different strengths.
0: Uh,
1: I think uh, it's one of its real strengths.
0: But uh, the danger is still there that uh, CI is shoved aside.
1: Yeah. uh, You've got to impose yourself. It's It's kind of a reflex reaction by a lot of policymakers and operators, Uh, don't wanna hear it. You people are paranoid, you're seeing ghosts everywhere. Uh, You're you're people that see problems even when problems don't exist. Mm -hmm. Our job is to dig and to look into nooks and crannies that other people aren't looking into. And we find things. And I think we've, we prefer, provide a very valuable service, but we only can do our job if you let us in. If you tell us we can't have access to the files, we can't have access to your personnel, we can't have access to your spaces, we can't do our job. I had to go to the seventh floor more than once <laughs> to overcome the opposition I was getting from one of these barons sitting down in one of these geographic divisions. Who didn't want independent counterintelligence poking into their operations. But I had the support of the director. Uh, you know, some of my friendships with my colleagues were affected. Mm. Uh, but you gotta be pushy. You gotta be pushy. Uh, I think I mentioned in the book that if counterintelligence were ever to have a mascot, it should be a pit bull. <laughs> pit bull. Yes, it will not take no for an answer.
0: That's right. <laughs> the, I love it. The the mascot is the pit bull. Uh, okay. They don't let go. No, they don't. So, they well, grab on. They grab well, on. Well, the thing is, um, you know, I think that your next commandment explains why there is this kind of uh, this kind of pushback. Um, yeah. You know, you you bring up um, Angleton, you bring up, uh, that, oh, you, you know, you guys are seeing problems, ghosts, you're, yeah, you know, you, yeah. you, you know, you're seeing, uh, issues everywhere. You, you guys are paranoid. Right. Um, but the ninth commandment is do not stay too long. Uh, and I want to quote you from the book. Well, it's actually a quote that you use to start the ninth commandment off. You begin the chapter with a quote, uh, from, uh, the book wilderness of mirrors uh and it's quote the game attracted strange men and slowly twisted them until something snapped Uh and apparently that phrase wilderness of mirrors is attributable attributable to uh james angleton so um can can you speak to that wilderness of mirrors and what it means you know to to just not stay too long what's the danger
1: yeah well, not only Angleton, but other people also uh, demonstrated that same kind of paranoia. A steady diet of, of counterintelligence can be hazarded to your mental health because it is a labyrinth. It is a wilderness of mirrors. Um, reality becomes twisted, distorted. Uh, because you're living in a world of deception, you're living in a world of conspiracy, of betrayal, and it is very easy to lose your bearings in that kind of a world if you do that all the time. I require my officers to rotate in and out every couple of years. Mm-hmm. Go out and ventilate your thinking. You know work with the operators for a couple of years. Uh, get a new point of reference. You have a better understanding and then you'll come back refreshed. You'll come back as a better counterintelligence officer because if you do this nonstop for a long period of time, there's almost an inevitability that you will end up like an Angleton, twisted. Uh, Angleton stayed for 20 years. My successor in counterintelligence uh, told me that after about two years of doing counterintelligence, he knew what I was talking about. Wow. He said, I felt that paranoia creeping in on me. And I had to get out. Uh, the actual title of my book, or of my commandment, Don't Stay Too Long, is a quote from my wife Meredith, who was in the CIA with me. Mm-hmm. When I got the cable from the director when I was chief of station in Vienna, directing me to go back to do counterintelligence. Meredith and I went out for a walk that night so we could talk. And Meredith knew the reputation of counterintelligence. She knew what it did to people.
0: Mm.
1: And she said, Jim, if you really feel called to do this, if you really want to do this counterintelligence job, okay, but don't stay too long. Because she, knew, was... she knew what could happen to her husband. And yeah, wise words, exactly. Um,
0: you know, you talk about how, I mean, it really is incredible because you talk about how Angleton went down the paranoia rabbit hole God. only to have some someone else within the CIA, you describe this, I forgot the individual's name, spend years investigating Angleton because of all things he thought he ended up trying to put a case against Angleton that Angleton was a Russian spy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of sick think that is produced in, in the, the bowels of counterintelligence, and that's a good example. Only uh, because Angleton Angleton, Angleton... Angleton was no spy, but <laughs> the, in the mind of that other counterintelligence professional, which had been, been frankly warped by the same process, he could make the case that Angleton was the spy. Uh, it yeah. seems absurd in retrospect, but it did great, great harm to U.S. counterintelligence over the years. Uh, and we needed to correct that.
0: Now, you, you, one last thing on this. You mentioned the righteousness trap. Yes. What is the righteousness trap?
1: It's uh, very seductive. We're all prone to it, particularly those of us who believe so strongly in our mission, our purpose, our professional purpose, uh, what we devote our lives to protecting this country, you can, if you don't resist it, fall into the righteousness trap. You can become convinced in your own mind that what you're doing is so important for the security of our country. It is so righteous. It is so inherently good. It is so essential that to get there, you can cut corners. You can violate laws. You can treat people badly. You can commit other abuses. Because in your mind, what you're doing is so righteous and so important that all of those lesser crimes are justified in the process. That's a real trap. And a lot of people have fallen into it. Uh, take Iran-Contra, a really good example. Wow. A lot of good people were convinced that the security of our country depended on supporting the San, the, uh, the the Contras in, in, in Nicaragua against the Sandinistas. And they violated the law to get there. Uh, and I tell my students, violating the US law is never, never acceptable. You violate your oath, you violate your tr- the trust that the country's put in you. Violating the law is never an option. Uh, I mean, where are we if we allow lawlessness to creep into our our intelligence community, our law enforcement community? Uh, it's antithetical to everything we believe in. I think as a people. Uh, yeah.
0: So, uh, yeah. Sage. Sage. Um, advice. Um, final commandment. Um, is, you know, it's, it's inspiring, right? But it also speaks to the patience needed to do what you did for so long, to do what your, uh, your trainees uh, need to do. And that, and that final commandment um, is, you know, just, it, I mean, it's, it's powerful words. The 10th commandment, right, is never, ever, Give up. Can you speak to why, um, especially in counterintelligence, it's not just a rallying cry. It's actually a a hazard of the job.
1: Yeah, that's so true. Um, Counterintelligence is rarely instant gratification. It's tedious. It is starting with a small thread a fragment. And you need to build on that. And it's gonna be slow. It's going to be painful. You're not gonna see much progress. As I write in to catch a spy, it is no fun to go into the office every day and see that Gordian knot there and realize that it is never budging. It's not been unraveled. It's not been cut. It's the same Gordian knot that you had last month, and even the last year. But if you stay with it, if you never give up, you will have what I call that eureka moment when suddenly you get the break. You get that small piece of intelligence. You get the surveillance report. You get the intercept. You get the defector who puts you on the right track, who makes sense of it, It all comes together, Eureka, it's there. Look at some of the case studies that I've done in my book. Look at the Conrad case. It was so easy to give up because our army colleagues in counterintelligence had just little pieces to indicate that there was a traitor inside the US Army in Germany Mm -hmm. with access to their top secret documents. When they tried to zero in, the suspect list was in the thousands and thousands. Where do you even start? Can you imagine the tedium of going into the office every day as a counterintelligence analyst for the Army going through file after file after file? And every day when you get done, your assistants bring in another stack (laughs) to work on the next day. And you don't even know for sure what you're looking for. Except that you've got to hope that you can find something. And of course they did. Uh, It took us nine years to get Rick Ames. Yeah. What was it? 14 years to get Anna Montez. It's very tempting to say, this is too hard. I can't do it. It's not going anywhere. I'm wasting my time. That's what our adversaries want. They want us to give up. Uh, And shame on us if we do. Because patience pays off. Perseverance pays off. Now there'll be some nuts that you're never able to crack. Mm -hmm. But with good discipline and that attitude, I'm never going to give up. I don't know of a single counterintelligence expert who even has giving up in his vocabulary or her vocabulary. We don't do it. Wow. And we will get there. Uh, and when we do, I can't even begin to describe the exhilaration that you feel of identifying an American trader, of bringing an American trader to justice. It makes it all worthwhile. You know, it's uh, indescribable. It's why we do what we do. Uh, the psychic rewards of a counterintelligence career make it, uh, I believe, the the choices of all subspecialties. I wish I could do it all over again.
0: I, I know. I in your book, you know, you and you said during this podcast, you wish you could end, you know, you long to enter the battle once again. And but I can't,
1: Morris. <laughs> but I can do the next best thing, and that's to train the next generation to teach, uh, I. Can't begin to tell you how satisfying that has been to work with these quality young people down here, mm. you know, launch them into the, the same kinds of, of public service, national security careers that Merritt and I were privileged to have in our career. Thank you, George Bush for giving me that opportunity to come down here. Um, That's
0: fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And, and I'll tell you what, if, if your students who go on to these careers are as passionate as you, and if they're as as intrigued and curious and interested as you are and, and love what they do, and are as uh, dogged like a pit bull as you are, then our, 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 our enemies are, uh, are in a tough spot. Uh,
1: well, they're better than I ever was. Um, amazing. And uh, they're gonna go off and do some, some very important work for our country.
0: You know what, Jim, um, I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, you know, we have spent uh, a great conversation together, and it's been so interesting to talk to you and learn more about this. And I know our audience is going to be fascinated by what you've discussed as well. Um, there's so much more I wanted to talk to you about, uh, especially double agentry. So I hope you will come on the podcast again. Uh, we
1: can do a podcast on double agency.
0: That's what I'm talking about. So I, I, hope, uh, you know, I hope you'll come on again to, to talk about that. But thank you so much uh, for coming on. And I implore everyone who's listening uh, to get your book, To Catch a Spy. Uh, and uh, it, it is truly uh, a wake-up call uh, for, uh, for this country.
1: Well, thank you, Lawrence. Uh, thank you, Alpha Human Podcast. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you also to everybody who will be Watching and listening. I uh, really appreciate your, your interest in counterintelligence and your, your desire to, to inform yourself about the, the threats our country faces.
0: Jim, uh, keep doing the incredible work you're doing at the, uh, the Bush School and Godspeed.
1: Thank you very much, Lawrence.